how many people understand the people they're actually serving? How can you when you don't live in their worlds, you don't have the same shared experience? And how often have we got these people in all of our decision-making processes? Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Actually, this podcast is now going to be about customer experience. I've decided to make the change because just reading about that and, and, and understanding where things are moving, you know, the focus on the citizen and the importance of communication engagement in delivering the customer experience is all the more important. So trying to line up the language, I think we'll start to talk about customer experience. Now, I know in customer experience, there's data and there's digital and there's all sorts of things that go into that obsession that we all need to have with the citizens and the people and the customers that we have in the work that we do. But I think if we broaden this out, let's talk about customer experience. We'll sort of move into that sort of wider zeitgeist and uh, enable us to have more conversations. Now, someone who knows all about great experience, great customer experience, is my guest today, uh, Professor Sharon Rundle-Teal. Sharon is the founding director of social marketing at Griffith University in Queensland, and she is the editor-in-chief of the journal of social marketing. She has a background in commercial marketing, which she draws upon in her current research, where she focuses on applying marketing to benefit people and the planet. She's worked on numerous social marketing projects that help tackle issues such as marine pollution in Indonesia, the unhealthy eating habits of military personnel, domestic pet and wildlife interactions, and teen drinking habits. Her mission is to see marketing applied in communications more often. She believes that only voluntary approaches can be applied that will change people's behaviour. You may also remember that Sharon and her wonderful team at Social Marketing at Griffith also helped us with the very first GovComs Festival and produced 24 hours worth of stellar content. And we are very grateful for the support that they gave us for that wonderful event. She joins me today from sunny Queensland in Australia. Sharon, welcome to GovComs. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So this notion of, of the language of marketing, and I suppose off the top, it's probably a reasonable conversation to have with you around this notion of the ever-changing sort of world of is it communication, is it engagement, is it marketing, is it customer experience? It seems to me that we're now starting uh, to look much more around customer experience and certainly your work around social marketing has been dedicated to really focusing on people and making sure that policy solutions are really derived from understanding people deeply before you engage with them. So where do you sit on this sort of nomenclature as it sits around um, this whole world that we work in? Look, I came to see across the space of making change happen. So whether we're dealing with people's health or their well-being, 
uh, looking at protecting the environment, um, whether it be our koalas who are highly endangered. Um, marketing has a capacity to really help in this space of creating change. And marketing is one of the most misunderstood terms, I think, in that for years, even when I teach across the tens of thousands of people I've now taught, um, a lot of people get very siloed and they start to come to understand marketing as one small component of what is actually a strategic approach that needs to be applied. So if you've got a very good overview of what marketing is, it's actually a philosophical approach. It places people at the core of everything that you do. Now, corporations are great at doing this. They're very good at understanding who they're serving. They make damn sure that they give them what they want when they need it. And as a result, they make huge profits. So the better they are at doing it, the faster they can actually sell more and get more customers to keep selling more. So corporates have known it for a very long time. Governments are definitely cottoning onto it. We are seeing explosions of different types of teams across different government arms, um, from customer experience teams to nudge units. So different approaches getting applied with different levels of understanding of what they're actually trying to do. So if we place people at the core of everything we do, that means our metrics and our measures of success are actually how many people are willing to come back, how many people are happily promoting what we're actually doing for us, rather than us telling them they're actually talking for us and other markers like that. They're how we actually know we've succeeded. We listen, we learn, we adapt, and we evolve in response to any criticism, but ultimately we don't shy away from it because everyone's right and we have to know that. So, but I suppose the and, and this is I'll tell you, it's an interesting story um, in my own experience because uh, the work that we do essentially is content marketing. Uh, but my experience was when the the term content marketing uh, was popularised, sort of around two thousand eight two thousand nine, we were coming back and again it was very simple. It was the same sort of thing, exactly what you're talking about. It was a marketing process that we were trying to introduce to government, but. The problem that we had at the time was introducing the language and saying it's marketing. Now, we could go on and try to explain about, you know, understanding people and what their needs are and giving them the information that they need in order for them to behave in the way that you need to achieve your objectives. But I found that as soon as you mentioned the word marketing, the lights turned off because public servants, as a rule, as soon as you say the word marketing, they just think, oh, that's not us. We don't do marketing. We do communication, we do engagement, but we don't do marketing. So how do we solve this problem of finding the language? And and to me, I think it may be customer experience or citizen experience because that seems to be a wider catch-all. And as I I said in the introduction, it picks up data, it picks up uh, digital and technology, but certainly all of the principles of marketing that you just mentioned are baked into a successful customer experience so or citizen experience. So I'm really wrestling with how do we sort of get that commonality of understanding? So someone in Brisbane or someone in Dublin or London or Cincinnati, everyone immediately goes, oh yeah, okay, I get it, I understand it. So How do we solve that problem? Look, I think we're probably spending a lot of time trying to choose a term, select the right approach or 
things come and go and there's fashions that we've seen across the courses of our career. But what if we actually focused on outcomes? What measurable change has occurred as a result of any of the activities and efforts that we've actually implemented? So if you look at something like the theory of change and you look at the work that your team does, like great content, it's engaging content, it grabs attention, but asking of all of that work, what has actually changed as a result of what we're actually doing? And for me, it becomes, rather than debating whether it's called a potato or a potato, um, whether we're talking about swimmers or, you know, rashies and different names like we love to do in Australia, it's like rather than all of that, why don't we actually get back to the common core of why, why we're here, why we get up every day and why we're doing the work that we actually do? Because if we have that marker and like, like any corporation measures its profit, then everything's aligned. Like every activity that we're running is actually aligned to that one outcome. Hmm. But I, And I agree with that. But I suppose the task, though, is getting people engaged around a conversation because I don't think anyone would agree with that because, you know, people sitting in government departments all over the world, they are there in service of the people of their communities. But I just think whether it, if it was possible to come with a common language, I just think that it would sort of accelerate a whole lot of uh, understanding and resistance perhaps to the fact that the marketing practices that you're talking about, that you learned about many years ago and have applied in a commercial career successfully and are now applying them in, in, in social marketing. And that again, I learned in my career through um, private sector marketing that I'm now applying, they're the very same principles that we're all talking about. Um, but again, it's it, it's a language thing, I suppose, that I'm wrestling with at the moment and whether or not we're, gonna, we're not going to solve it today in the podcast. But yeah, I just wonder again how how do we how do we market marketing in a way that people understand that that's what it's about? It's about focusing on the customer or the citizen, understanding them deeply, understanding their needs, and being able to use that understanding to you know to create the various interventions that we need to to that that encourage that behaviour. So anyway, it's a it's we're not as I say not going to solve it today, but it's a. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, as you say, we do go through various cycles and this customer experience CX thing that's sort of coming out of agile and coming out of software design and, you know, all of those various principles, you know, they are same, same. You know, they're the same principles that I learned many, many years ago when I was at, um, at university. Are they not just attempts for these other fields to actually popularise marketing for their own fields in languages that work for the players in those fields? <laughs> well, that's true I too. Patient-centred yeah. care, user design, UX, design experience, you name it, they are definitely yeah. versions and applications of that philosophical approach that is marketing. So again, yeah. if we have constituents who are happy with a certain process and they're following it, I think that tells you good, successful marketing has been applied and it's created a following and that is a good thing. So if we want more people doing more of the approaches we're applying, they need to know there's no risk, that they're going to get the outcomes they need, which in their case might be to actually make sure they're serving their constituency well because they want to keep on doing that role. So I think mm. that's the um, true application of marketing that comes in. You have to trust it. It has to have a great, strong reputation and it has to be delivering on the promise every time. So listen, how how are we doing in your view? You know, you lead probably 
you know, the leading social marketing school in Australia, if not the world, in, you know, given much of the work that you've done, how, how good are we now at starting to apply those marketing uh, techniques and practices and processes into the social realm to deliver benefit for citizens? I would argue um, and contend that we've actually seen enormous growth across not only social marketing but other derivatives, the things that aren't necessarily calling themselves marketing. Um, They're being applied in more places more often and we've seen a huge explosion in growth. What we will need to see going forward is more of the principles and the foundational practices being applied every time because if we actually apply these main principles every single time, more rates of behaviour change will actually occur. So more people will change, higher rates of change will actually be seen. The science is there. We know what we need to do. And there is just more evidence needed that the approach is effective to create that trust and have people say, sure, we're now going to bring that into our daily practice. It's not that hard, is it, really, for people to, you know, because it is, you know, simplicity, there is genius in simplicity. And if you can really strip it all away, and going back to one of your earlier answers, if you if you put the people who you are trying to service or working in service of at the centre of what you do, then good things can come from there. And if you can measure the progress of that behaviour change or whatever it is that you, you're seeking to uh, achieve, that you can then... Um, you know, focus your work in such a way that, you know, you can deliver the outcomes that uh, the, your political leaders are, are looking for. That is exactly right, David. Like, to me, if we can break out of our silos even more, if we can create the partnerships across entities and start to bring some of the issues together more, I think we'll affect even more change again. I think coming out of the commercial sector and becoming all things social, I was always a little bit disappointed at how political some of these change efforts remain and how a new leadership team would come in and wipe away an an entire program, a huge investment. And I can understand why it's been happening because we haven't been measuring the outcomes enough, but I think we need to move past that and make sure now that we're actually monitoring progress and reporting on it. So what health outcomes? have we achieved? What environmental effects or gains have we observed? And then it becomes a little bit less political and a little bit clearer that there is an imperative doing more of what we know works. Because if we don't do this, we're losing our citizens' trust. Like the number of projects I get helicoptered in to work on and the frustration on ground because it's yet another talk effort and they're not seeing the actual measurable outcomes and sometimes the sad part is they're actually there, they're just not being communicated well. So the more we get real, open and transparent and clear and the more it's partnered and brought together, I, I think the, I've got a heart here that says we can actually achieve even greater things. So that issue around silos is, is an interesting one, isn't it? Is that people who are notionally supposed to be working together in the best interests of a defined group to achieve a particular outcome, can't work together or don't work together, uh, what's your advice or, or how do you go about trying to get people 
to work together because I do think that this is in the public service an issue where they're, they're hierarchical organisations, they're structured vertical organisations and the world of agile and, and multifunctional, t- you know, cross-disciplinary teams, this is all, all new and it, it works against the traditional structures. So how do you go about getting people to work together better in these bigger organisations that are often rigid and structured in a vertical way? Yeah, and I think the one thing to add to your excellent synopsis of some of the challenges is that also a lot of effort is very top-down driven. And as a result, you see people looking and waiting to react to a directive rather than being proactive and adaptive, but ultimately I think what is clear and important, bottom-up driven. Um, How many people understand the people they're actually serving? How can you when you don't live in their worlds, you don't have the same shared experience, and how often have we got these people in all of our decision-making processes? So do we are we actually re- reporting back to the right committee? Rather than actually reporting to our top directors, are we actually serving the groups that we're actually here to represent? Are they at the core of every operational decision that's happening, and are we actually serving them well? I think to get out of the silos, we need more people working collaboratively, actively and together, and you need consensus processes, but you also need to make sure the project governance now has the outcome focus at heart and then actually has the people you serve as the people you're reporting and responsible to. Hmm. So in terms of then your your planning um, process that you un- undertake, can you give us a bit of an outline as to how you go about planning. You know, this podcast is all about trying to give people some skills and knowledge that they perhaps don't have. So what's a sort of a bit of a mud map of how you would go about unpicking a a particular problem to bring that marketing um, approach to to solving a particular problem? Um, I'll work from one of the projects where we actually have got measured success and a 40% reduction in koala deaths from dogs. We got on ground. We knew nothing about the context that we'd been handed to deliver, so we didn't know anything about how to prevent dog attacks. And we had to work with experts. We ran stakeholder interviews, stakeholder consensus processes, but importantly, community co-design effort and got out there and learned from dog owners themselves what would work for them and other dog owners like them. And that told us so much The other thing we did before we got out to community was just ran evidence checks. So looking across other programs that were similar to look at what activities and programs look like and what have successfully engaged or not, um, because sometimes learning from mistakes of others is just as valuable as others' success, took all of that forward into community to say, here's some really great ideas and approaches that have been used elsewhere And then watch community discard so many of those approaches. And if I think that project taught us one thing, that's when we started to really understand the importance of bottom-up. If you can get people to reveal their preferences and you can see consensus emerging across what people want and then you create the partnerships they want to see, the rest happens for you. They do the talking for you. You don't even have to worry quite so much about the content you're producing because it's naturally happening for you. And there's a lot of power in that. Mm. 
So listen, getting back to that, you know, the first step of the process there where you're talking about sort of understanding context and being able to draw on lessons learned from other places, what what sort of processes do you go through to assemble that types of, of material? Where are some of the sources that you would go to? You know, let's go through to this particular example because it's a good one. You know, the koala is a iconic, you know, totemic figure in, in Australia and everyone loves a koala and to, to, to think that you're able to introduce a, uh, a program of behaviour change that has resulted in a 40% reduction in the amount of uh, deaths by attacks from dogs is, is remarkable. So in terms of that, what, what were some of the sources that you went to that, that helped you to get those insights, those contextual insights that are so important? Yeah, so from our team's perspective, regardless of what challenge would be put in front of us, we have the scientific literature that serves as one base, like peers review each other's work, we know it's being validated and tested and it's a strong evidence base. So that's one source. There is a lot of grey literature out there. So there's a lot of programs that are implemented by professionals. They're reported in project reports that are available online. And they offer a potential for any team to scour and look for lessons. So what can we learn from past approaches? Um, and what we've t- typically done is just drawn up tables and, and just looked for what strategies and activities of people actually use so that you get this big overview that you can then take forward um, and what we would call ideas cards so that as we hit our co-creation phase, we're working from, and I, I have an analogy, we're standing on the, sh- the shoulders of giants We're not here to reinvent. We can actually learn a lot from the past, but what we need to do is take that forward and imagine with communities how it will work for them. And I think that's the power, whether you call it co-design or participatory design, in our process we call it co-creation because it's actually bringing stakeholders and community together Um, because we know that if we don't have the stakeholder support, well, it won't happen. And that goes back to those silos and people being fearful or just believing it won't work. And that becomes a a big process to bring people on a journey together to actually help them challenge, I think, their own biases to actually move forwards. How long does it take to convince people once you start to open up the conversations? Because essentially it sounds to me that through your, your... your co-design process is really a conversation stimulation process, really, where you're trying to, you know, basically bubble up all of the different views and viewpoints and and, and socialise those viewpoints against some of the evidence and other things that you've been able to assemble. So again, how, you know, how, how do you manage those conversations in a, in a respectful way such that people do feel safe that they can express their viewpoints? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and I think the approaches can actually vary over time. Sometimes you need to take two steps backwards and run an additional workshop where you bring people together to bring them forwards on a journey. Sometimes it can be that some of your doubters, uh, the people who don't believe it's going to work, can actually be brought into a co-design session where they serve as a note taker and listen to community and that changes those biases in just an hour and a half. Um, So different approaches that, again, break down some of those structural barriers because the more people can see it for themselves and live the experience, the the, the faster you can actually help move them. 
Um, and while we can't endlessly talk with stakeholders and, and just constantly learn, we can definitely dive deep and fast and we can have rapid approaches applied to actually understand how to actually roll something out that might work for communities that we're serving. Hmm. So it's interesting, though, uh, uh, that insight, which is something I haven't really thought about too much before, is really that influencing the context in such a way that you create a favourable environment for the story that you're trying to tell. So you're sort of well, providing almost an accelerant and having others do the work for you as opposed for you having to do all of the work. So that's, the, that, that's an interesting insight, isn't it? Is that part of your challenge and part of the opportunity is to create that favourable environment that then can help you to do the, you know, the heavy lifting and the understanding, I suppose, as these programs continue to evolve over time? Well, I'm a really big believer across the work that we do that we are merely here to facilitate and guide and serve and that we ultimately run with a, a very strong sort of ethos and principle that we're here to make ourselves redundant. The whole idea isn't that we're here to create the new program, to do the something. The idea really is that the, the strengths are there in communities. The um, infrastructure exists and it's a case of building the correct partnerships, so kind of reimagining and building in a different way to ultimately get to a point where it is embedded and enshrined across things and actually running for itself. Um, and that's taken our, our team a long time to learn as we shifted our marketing, what was commercial practice, into the social change space. Um, really, I think we need to empower more citizens and make sure that we reorganise for them to help deliver the outcomes that actually need to be seen. So in terms of that particular program that you you mentioned in terms of that uh, reduction of 40% of, of dog attacks on, on koalas or deaths by koalas by dog attacks, how long did that take? And, and what were some of, once you got through the design phase, what was the process from there? Because I imagine... You know, you don't always get the, the solution right the first time. There's that agile process of testing and learning and understanding and then adapting and testing and learning, and it's that circular uh, process that you go through. So can you take us on that journey from once you finish those initial co-design, co-creation work, what, what happened then that sort of helped you to achieve those impressive numbers? So those impressive numbers came from three and a half years of sustained effort and the initial pilot itself demonstrated the concept and how essentially a behaviour could be embedded into dog training. Um, and we also have other sort of online support materials available. So it wasn't, not everyone can access dog training and afford it. So essentially it took eight months to learn Today our team is doing that learning phase in about three months, so we've got a heck of a lot faster at doing the learning work. Um, and we actually had approximately six weeks from approval to actually get into market to run that first pilot. That pilot delivered the proof of concept and from there the team spent a lot of time and effort starting to build the community partnerships and work went on for three years to get to that 40% reduction point. Now, we sort of were proud of the 40%. We know today we could achieve that faster and better through all the processes and the, the learnings that our team had in how to build and what to do. 
Um, and ultimately, I think our team would feel a lot more successful if it was closer to 100%. So it still indicated more work was needed. Uh, there are other learnings that need to be gained to figure out why we're missing some of these attacks, what else can be done. Um, and that's, I think, where I talk about the funding environment and ongoing support needed now because a lot of learning is run and done and it's reported across all of those studies I talked about before. And too often we see that funding go and those programs die. So all of that progress made disappears and evaporates and that's, that's not a great outcome. Um, so moving forward, how else and what else can we do to make sure it's embedded into the communities and continues when funding actually comes, you know, and disappears? So that's where our entire field of practice, I think, can still benefit from further work as we get more and more learnings on how to do that. So how then do you build that capability into government organisations, whether it's out in the business areas that generally hold the responsibility for stakeholder engagement or, in fact, in the central communications area who have responsibility for uh, media, for content, for social media, for strategic communications planning? How do you, under, how, how do you build the capability? I guess could we smash down that silo first would be my answer um, and get more cross-functional approaches being applied um, because the more that would kick in, I think the more aligned the effort would become to building the infrastructure needed to support ongoing change. Because um, if you look at any sort of business development arm or partnership development arm, they're out there creating a lot of infrastructure and then sometimes if it's divorced from that communication arm, the communication arm actually doesn't really know enough about what's being formed and isn't talking about that in such a way that it connects well. And this goes back to that earlier point that I made, that sometimes there's amazing progress being made by government, but community knows nothing about it. And so they're being criticised like crazy for lack of progress or not doing enough when in actual fact the more transparent we get about just what it actually takes to make all of these changes happen would help more of our community understand the bigger picture. It is complex and we have local government areas, state government and federal government. We've watched COVID where our federated states now are acting a little bit independently so we can see some of the tensions. Like it's very easy to see how it plays out differently in different places. Um, so how well are we getting together and doing the cross-coordination effort that we need to see because at the end of the day, a person who's living in a place or a space is seeing a lot of conflicting things going on and I think that's a bit uncool and we could improve that a lot by starting to get really clear about what are the main things we're actually trying to chase here and getting very, very clear about how we're going to do that so that mixed signals aren't being sent because big corporates aren't sending mixed signals. They send very clear messages and they just remind and remind and remind. So we've got a lot of work to do and it is more about this coordination or streamlining or cross-functionality that needs to happen to get further improvements. So if you had a magic wand, which I'm not sure, you might have one, but um, how, where do you, how, again, I suppose it's an earlier question repeated though, it's how do you solve that silo issue? How do you solve that coming together? Where are the sort of first steps? You know, obviously, the 
standing up the cross-functional teams, getting the governance right, making sure that everyone who needs to be in the room is in the room, and then having the processes and, and, and the skills and the capability to be able to think through a, a citizen-centred approach. So how, but making that happen, is it, does it come from the top ultimately that the leaders have to recognise that this is the way that they need their teams to behave? Well, if leaders set very strong measurable outcome KPIs, so this is the exact change I want to see, I think that would do a lot at getting to the heart of trying to streamline and improve how we operate because maybe we're not deploying our resources as effectively as we could. Maybe it would force us all to ask a lot more of how we're operating why sometimes we're repeating an understanding study that we're out there trying to co-create a solution when in actual fact maybe what we should actually be doing is implementation. And a lot of the effort could be happening in spaces of the doing a little bit more and less of the talking and telling. Um, I'm a big believer that the more we've got that front and centre, the better off we would be because corporately we chased and that was cash. Growth, money, profit. So it's just an outcome. It was a really clear one. And every part of those corporations is aligned to achieving more of that. So can we now bring that functionality and thinking into the public space? It would really help us greatly. What about the the changes in technology, which have now gifted every organisation the ability to be a media company? So that ability to create you know, useful, relevant, consistent content, be it video, audio, stills, text, graphic. It's a wonderful gift that organisations now have to be able to reach out and to engage and communicate with citizens and, and stakeholders. How big a transformation is that in terms of the capability that government now has to to build trust through being more transparent and more open and more engaging with the information that they create and distribute? Look, I think you've described a huge part of the communication component really well, and I want to add one more. It actually provides us with a huge capacity to listen and learn, and that is the thing I think that still across the fragmentation that we now see across social media and and how media keeps evolving so rapidly we can hardly keep up with it, still gives us an ability to have fingers on the pulse, to understand exactly where sentiment is and getting back to that agility and learning to move faster, adapt and respond and stay in front or along with some of how people are thinking and feeling because that media talks to us all the time. The opportunity to learn from it is huge. But how many operators are effectively listening and learning and building their constituencies as a result of the way they communicate. I think we still have a lot of improvement that we could make across our approaches as we apply communication. So from here, where do you see sort of the next 12 to 18 months as, you know, the change continues to move quickly as we start to see the impacts and widespread adoptions of machine learning and artificial intelligence and the sources of data continue to grow as 5G networks continue to mature. How, what's your advice to people in terms of 
if I, and I often feel this myself, you know, you sit there and you just like wake up some mornings and you go, oh, you know, like it's, it feels like the world is moving so quickly that it's hard to keep up, I suppose, or you feel like you're, you're falling behind because you're not running at a million miles an hour and perhaps you're not making the progress as quickly as, as you like to. So how do you deal with that, that sense of, uh, Maybe it's frustration, but it's also that overwhelming sense that oh, this is you know this isn't going to end anytime soon, and these changes, whether you know what sorts of applications or processes or whatever else is being introduced, it just makes it um, overwhelming at times. So, how do you help your clients and 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 the students that you're teaching uh, to maintain their sort of equilibrium about all of this? Look, you, you raise a really good point because the volume of data and our access to it is just exponentially growing every day. So we are left in a world where there is more and more there at our fingertips. It's easy to be so overwhelmed by all of that just simply because where do I start and which sources do I trust and, and how do I start to navigate what is essentially just a, a growing pile of information. Uh, I think we need to stop and think, are we reacting or are we being strategic here? What are we actually here for? And who are we serving? And what is that main aim that we're trying to get? Because that data is there to help us. And if we use it well and listen and learn from it, already the answers are clear and they're sitting there. They're at our fingertips. But how we take that data forward into the learnings that we need does need some improvement. And one way that we've been working with large teams here in the country uh, using visualisation and other forms to help people easily see and link incredibly huge amounts of data in a way that they can actually start to do something about it. So there are definitely ways that we can move forward and make a lot of progress because we do know some of the things that need to happen and then getting the political will and the consensus, like the buy-in from all players across different levels of governance should then kick in easily to help bring about the support and the infrastructure that some people out there need to navigate and move forward to improve their health or protect the environment. Now, at the, the university there, at Griffith University, the, the, the school that you lead, the, the social marketing school, what's, what's the views of the students at the moment as they move into um, the world of social marketing? What's their view and take and what are the particular skills and attributes that you see from the young people um, coming into the field who are going to be going into the workforce? What sort of changes are going to happen as a result of, of the new generation? It's a good question. Um, I think there's a general optimism and a capacity to question and challenge, um, and that's good because if we're going to achieve any form of change, there has to be a willingness and a preparedness to literally change the status quo. So we can't keep doing what we've always been doing. And in the generation coming forward, like as they're enrolling in behavioural science majors or they're undertaking social marketing training, there's a big belief that they can actually change the system. We can reduce plastics. We can actually reinvent and create the infrastructure that we actually need to support people and prevent abuse. We can challenge people's biases um, I really think there's a great sense of optimism about what's possible. But on the flip side, a key challenge in any of this space is how funding is delivered. 
Um, and sometimes for some that, that growing realisation of it's like being in a really big competition um, and maybe it shouldn't be quite that way. Like maybe more of this could be enshrined in our normal business as usual, giving people job continuity and a sense that there's, you know, a lot of work they have ahead of them that they just need to focus on rather than trying to win the next job. Mm. So getting back to that strategic moving forward and a little bit less reactance would greatly benefit all effort across the sectors. Sharon, thank you so much. A final question before we go. What's on your radar then for the next sort of 12 to to 18 months as you continue to sort of roll across the savannah of, you know, social marketing? What what do you see as coming up over the, the next 12 to 18 months that you'll be applying your attentions to? I think it's going to be the same answer I might have given about seven or eight years ago when we first settled in to do this wonderful thing called social marketing, and that is to continue to challenge the practice and understand where the efficiencies can be gained because at heart the more we can create change as a result of the efforts that we do, the better for all, the people we work with, the people we serve. Um, I've had a very long-standing sort of scientific underpinning for some of my work. It's like literally focusing in and testing and trialling what works and what doesn't work. Should we be applying this? Shouldn't we? Um, so moving forward, making sure that we're running more change campaigns out there and learning from them and then contributing back into practice and training people and passing out what we know so that we know people can actually start moving forward and getting more outcome change, whether it's protecting the planet or protecting people or improving people's health. Now, it, this is a sort of a key skill area that I see is going to have to be baked into uh, governments as they seek to engage more uh, effectively. And this is, you're hearing this all around the world. Every every government is seeking to engage more authentically, more transparently, because they understand that, you know, citizens are empowered and they have the ability to to make decisions, they have the ability to vote, they have the ability to express viewpoints that perhaps in, in years past they, they didn't quite have those powers. So there's a recognition that the people need to get these skills and governments need to get these skills and they do need to put citizens at the centre of, of all that they do. How best could people engage with you at at um, social marketing at Griffith there, where, how can they be in contact with you so they may be able to enrol in some of your education and courses? What's the best way for people to do that? Yeah, we have um, courses operating at different levels. So there are some online courses if you just want to get a taster and a feel. We do training so we can come out and train teams. We can also work with teams and, in essence, by trialling processes, teach them how we approach it and what we actually do. Um, and across the different programs, you can go into formal studies. Um, you could sign up with us and be studying while you're actually doing your own implementation work or day-to-day -day practice. Um, that's one arm. Or you could take the more traditional sort of coursework approach and walk away with um, a professional qualification. You might just want a taster and a little bit. So there's, there's many different ways in terms of the training. Um, and then partnering with us um, just to basically learn the practice together um, is a great way and approach to work as well. Mm. So the, the best way, well, the, the simplest way really is just to Google um, social marketing at Griffith University. 
Yeah, or just to shoot Sharon Randall Teeley an email and I'll pass it in and out of my team very happily, have conversations with you. We're only working with a team across in New Zealand last week, teaching them how to run a co-design session as they're doing their project planning for the next round of work that they'll be doing to protect waterways. Um, so we're very happy to help because a big part of the work we do and our understanding is the more we can train and pass out the skill set we have, the better we'll see some outcome change kicking in. Now, I did say there was that was the last question. It was the last question a couple of questions ago. <laughs> but one more question is, you know, how mature is this practice across the world? Because, again, you, you do sit sort of at the fulcrum of a lot of this around the world. What are you, what are you seeing around the world and, and how does Australia rate um, against other jurisdictions around the world? I think I could be confident in saying Australia has been a long-standing world leader. Um, it did come out of work more than a decade ago, so it's it's not us. It's we we really do stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, a lot of people across the planet look to us to understand how we apply and what we actually do. And then we've been running a considerable amount of those evidence reviews, looking at the science and the reporting and other people's practice. Um, and we can still see that there's in, we we see improvements, and maybe they're not happening fast enough, and that there's still a, a good ways to go. Um, So there is room for improvement and that goes back to the earlier point I made about how much are we actually embedding the principles, those eight things that we know we should be doing. Do we have them in our grants, in our funding envelopes? Are they actually a checklist item that you can tick off knowing that they're run and done? And if you can, you're going to see better rates of change kicking in. So the more that we get to that point and every year when I teach, The first thing I do is teach all of my students these eight things and then get them to go out and diagnose other programs for how much are these things evident. So the more we all just have that simple understanding enshrined across our day-to-day practice, the faster and the better rates of change we'll see. Professor Sharon Rundle-Teeley, thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us. The GovComs episode generally goes around 30 to 35. We've taken an extra 10 minutes today, but I'm sure people will, uh, on indulgence, uh, accept that this was a great episode, so much value. And thank you so much for spending some of your very valuable time with us today. And uh, very grateful again for all of the support that you gave to the inaugural GovComs Festival and continuing to contribute through the content with the GovComs Institute. And no doubt our partnership and collaboration will continue into the future. So thank you very much. And to you, the audience, thank you once again for coming back and listen to these conversations. Customer experience, content communication, content marketing, social marketing, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'll change my mind and we'll go back to something else next week. But again, maybe I think, you know, Sharon's wisdom at the beginning of it is like the names don't matter, people do. And if you can just put the people at the centre of what you do and if you wake up every morning and think about who those people are, what their needs are and how can you as a public servant best meet those needs, then maybe the the language doesn't matter at all. So anyway, thanks again for coming back. We'll be back at the same time in a couple of weeks, but for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.